Good afternoon and welcome to this event from the IFG on what the UK can learn from other governments about upholding ethical standards. This is the third session in our special one day conference about standards in public life. We've already heard this morning from Lord Evans, chair of the Committee on Standards in Public Life, about how his committee would like to see the standards regime across the UK improved. And before lunch, there was a really interesting panel discussion looking at some of the different watchdogs that exist in the UK and discussing how they can work better, particularly relevant uh, given the events today and yesterday in the House of Commons discussing uh, Owen Paterson MP's uh, potential suspension and, as we've now learned, his resignation. So in this uh, third session, I'm really excited because we're going to talk about what the UK can learn from other governments, both devolved governments in the UK and foreign governments, um, about how they manage these issues, what, how, what approach they take to these big questions around ethical standards. We are joined by a great panel. Duncan Hames is Director of Policy and Programmes at Transparency International UK. He leads on TIUK's UK-focused work, and particularly looking at the UK as a safe haven for corrupt money and addressing corruption in the political sphere. Duncan has also served as a Liberal Democrat MP, so be interested to hear what he thinks about how the Commons has approached things over the last few days as well. From Belfast, we are joined by Dr Melissa McCulloch, of the, uh, who is the Commissioner for Standards at the Northern Ireland Assembly. The Commissioner carries out investigations into the behaviour of both members of the Legislative Assembly, MLAs, and since the passage of the Functioning of Government Act earlier this year, into ministers in the Northern Ireland Executive as well. Dr McCulloch has worked as an academic in law, ethics and professionalism in the UK and Ireland since 2005. And last but not least, from Ottawa, we have Commissioner Mario Dion, the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner of Canada. The Commissioner, who is entirely independent of the Canadian government, administers the Conflict of Interest Act for public office holders and the Conflict of Interest Code for members of the House of Commons in Ottawa. Before being appointed Commissioner in 2018, Mario had a long career across various parts of the Canadian public sector. So we have a fantastic panel here. I'm really excited to get into this discussion. Before we begin, I just want to make a couple of housekeeping points. So we are live tweeting this discussion, as with all of the discussions today, uh, from our IFG events account using hashtag IFG standards. So feel free to uh, join in the conversation there. We also have a live Q&A function. Please send in your questions at any time during the event. I'll keep an eye on them. I can't promise we'll get to all of them, but we will do our best. And if you would like to watch back or listen again, we will have a video and sound recording on the website within 24 hours. So to kick off, um, Duncan, if I could come to you first, what I would like your views on is, from the point of view of Transparency International, what are the most important changes that the UK can make to how standards are enforced and upheld in public life? Thank you, Tim. Uh, well, I would certainly identify three areas. Firstly, lobbying, um, not just for the reasons why it's come to public attention in the last day or two. Uh, secondly, what we call the revolving door between public office and uh, post office employment, often in the private sector. And, and thirdly, a culture of respect. And I don't mean that in its broadest terms, so that is obviously very important, but I mean it specifically in terms of respect for standards and the process of upholding them. Um, so, so firstly, on, on lobbying, uh, this is perhaps the highest risk area where there are the greatest potential for the distortion of the use of public funds or the direction of public policy and therefore it's very important that this process is as open and as transparent to the public on whose behalf um, our, our officials and politicians serve as possible. Uh, at the moment in the UK um, we have a register of consultant lobbyists. We don't even have a register of all lobbyists, far from it, it's just a fraction of the total number of lobbyists. And what we don't have is a register of lobbying either and uh, later we can compare that with what happens in, in other comparable democracies. Uh, on the revolving door, you know, we saw this, this interrelates with the lobbying issues we saw in the Greensill saga earlier this year. And, and the most um, obvious deficiency there is that none of this is binding. And indeed, it's the, the committee um, charged with this doesn't even have the 
tools at its disposal to monitor whether its advice has been followed. Uh, and as Lord Evans made clear in his report, there is a need to put this on a, on a statutory footing in, in order that we can address those points. And finally, on, on this issue of culture, because I think this ultimately culture is the key to ever um, being successful with regards to this ambition. And what we have seen, not just in the UK, but in other countries as well in recent years, is a uh, trend towards an acceptance that um, might is politically is effectively always right. That somehow politics is a game in which, well, if you can do it, you can do it. Uh, and that's not actually what politics or public service is about. Uh, and we, we need to move away from those kind of attitudes in relation to how we, we consider and respond to issues of standards. Brilliant, thank you. That is a, a brilliant overview of some of the themes I hope we will get into in more detail um, during this discussion. So uh, Melissa and Mario, feel free to pick up on, on any of the points that, that Duncan made to start there. I mean, Melissa, if I can come to you next for some, for some opening thoughts. Your role as it's currently constituted, uh, as I said, looks at both MLAs and ministers. So you kind of do the role for a Westminster audience that is carried out by the Parliamentary Commissioner on Standards, who's been in the news recently, and uh, the uh, independent advisor on ministerial interests. How does that work and what are the strengths of that role in the way that it's currently set up? Thanks, Tim. Yes, I do both roles, but that's a new development. The, um, as you know, the assembly was down for three years and prior to it recommencing, the new decade, new approach agreement came to be and it included lots of proposals, but some that aimed at restoring public trust in government. And that's where the Functioning of Government Act came in. And that was introduced as a private member's bill by Jim Allister as an MLA. And it's, it reformed the rules uh, basically around ministers, special advisors, transparency and lobbying. But in terms of my own position, it added the ministerial code um, of conduct and complaints relating to it. So I think um, the way, it, the why and, and how it works is that my position is, is sat in, in legislation. Um, and so adding to it ministerial uh, complaints seemed a very sensible thing to do because it was governed under the legislation and it had it has various um my, my role really is is legislated for in terms of appointment in terms of criteria for appointment independence of the commissioner um, also with it comes power to compel witnesses and documents it, it codifies uh, as an offense for example failure to attend or provide information under notice so there's a whole lot going on in the legislation um, and I my my role is 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 listed as investigating complaints against MLAs and now ministers and provided it provides the commissioner powers to initiate uh, their own, my own investigations into breaches of either code. So in that sense, it's quite strong. Um, it's quite, you know, it has teeth. And I think that's why they wanted the ministerial code of conduct within this this legislation and so it, it provides sort of a, a bedrock of independence and transparency and and natural justice which we've heard a lot about in the past 24 hours in terms of the guidance and and the role great thank you and that point about independence is, is also something that's come through a lot in our in our discussion so far today so the committee on standards in public life one of their major recommendations was about increasing the independence of the various kind of watchdogs and regulators at the uk level um, the debate yesterday about the independence of the parliamentary commissioner and, and the process that she runs uh, was, was very hard, uh, well, deeply felt. Clearly, people wanted more independence in different ways. So if I can turn to you, Mario, from your point of view, your role also covers different categories of people. You look at MPs in the Canadian Parliament, you look at ministers and also public office holders. So those who sit on the boards of public bodies how how do you balance those different kind of constituencies and groups and what keeps you busiest day to day in fact it's two uh, there are very there are common points but it's 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 managed as two distinct regimes the code adopted by mps back in 2004 is a schedule to the standing orders so it doesn't have the force of law except within parliament itself and it, it gives the commissioner some limited powers to uh, on the one hand, provide advice to MPs about their obligations under the code, binding advice on, on our part. When we provide advice, it is binding on the commissioner's office. 
and also to investigate, as my colleague from Northern Ireland mentioned, an MP can lodge a complaint against a fellow MP for an alleged breach of the code. Uh, the Act is uh, slightly more recent. It uh, was adopted in 2006. The code was adopted in 2004. And the Act covers a wide gamut of, uh, of officials, uh, starting with the Prime Minister and ministers, but also covering every uh, member of ministerial staff. Everybody who works in a minister's office is governed by the Conflict of Interest Act, including the drivers uh, and uh, the nannies as well, who work for Prime Minister Trudeau, are governed by the Conflict of Interest Act. So everybody who is appointed through an order in council, except for very few exceptions, uh, are governed by the Conflict of Interest Act. Here, my role is much more expensive than, the, than it is under the code. In fact, uh, Reading the statute, one realizes that uh, I think Parliament has uh, given the Commissioner the power to make sure that this works, essentially, to uh, to to fill loopholes as we go along, to uh, to uh, to to give directions and so on and so forth. So I provide advice. Uh, we feel it's binding as well, so it's in the interest of the public official to seek our advice to protect himself or herself against future problems. Uh, we also investigate, but I have the power also to order uh, public office holders to do anything that is reasonable in order to ensure that the act is respected. So custom made solutions, <clears throat> considering the situation of a particular public official. And uh, the act says, first of all, you try to negotiate something and should it fail, the commissioner still has the power to order it in any event. Of course, after the rules of fundamental justice have been uh, have been applied. So also uh, we're talking about 338 MPs, so it's a sizable number, just like in Britain. I guess it's much bigger in Britain, but it's still a sizable group. But uh, the Act uh, governs the conduct of uh, almost 3,000 people. So it's a, it's a large group of very, very diverse individuals. And it does contain, the Act contains post-employment provisions. And mm. I know there's an interest in discussing that, and maybe I, I will do so. Uh, in uh, the next round. The code does not contain any provision about post-employment obligations. So if you are only an MP, you are free to do whatever you please after your term is up. Uh, however, if you were a minister or the prime minister, you are uh, as I said, prevented from doing certain things for a period of two years after you leave government. And um, a couple of obligations also apply for life, and I will detail that later on if you wish. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Well, that's again a really, a really helpful overview. Let's absolutely come back to the point about post-employment um, rules because it picks up on Duncan's revolving door point. But first, just because of what's happened here in, in the UK over the last couple of days, so you know, there's, there was this report published saying that this MP had been lobbying, which broke the MP's code of conduct. The Standards Committee in the UK Parliament recommended that he'd suspended. The government overturned that vote and tried to set up a new system to um, to look at his case and standards cases more generally. And then today the government rode back and he has actually now decided to step down as an MP. So it's for me, it's really exposed the fact that so much of this comes down to politics. So you mentioned, Mario, that for, for MPs in the Canadian Parliament, um, the uh, the um, sorry, I'm just getting a message here. Um, the for MPs in the Canadian Parliament, um, it is it is just a code. It is in standing orders. That is the same as in the UK Parliament. Does that does that kind of make raise political problems? If if an MP is found to have broken the code, is it likely that it becomes then a kind of an almost a tribal political debate rather than one about standards and behaviour? Is that something that happens in Canada as well? Historically, I've been in the position three and a half years and we have not had any such situation, but it is clear to me that the potential is there for it yeah. to de degenerate into this. And uh, because of the nature of the instrument and the fact that there is no power outside of the House of Commons to uh, to determine the fate of any uh, recommendation made as to sanction by the Commissioner. So it's entirely resolved within the walls of Parliament. It's covered by parliamentary privilege. There is no access to any court. It's all done within the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. Whereas, Melissa, I think I'm right in saying in, in Northern Ireland, even the, the regime for MLAs, that is set out in legislation. Is, is that correct? 
Yes, it's in their code of conduct, which is legislated for essentially it, it also has a guide that goes along with it. And including that, it, um, they tightened up a lot about lobbying and defined it very well in the new Functioning of Government Act. Um, just, I think the, the definition is quite useful um, and also basically made it very clear that uh, soon after, as soon as you possibly can after meeting, you must write down and record the meeting and send it to the, your department. So there's really now more tightening of that. Yeah, and so, I mean, Duncan, what's your view? Do, one of the things that the um, the Committee on Standards in Public Life called for is greater statutory underpinning of all of the regimes across the UK. So for ministers, they didn't actually call for it for MPs, but for ministers, for the post-employment conditions and for the public appointments um, commissioner as well. Do you think that is something that we should have in the UK more uh, legislation on this stuff? Uh, yes, sadly, I do. and. Um, I think it's part of how responses to this situation have developed over time in many places. Um, the re reliance on codes and convention is part of the Westminster tradition uh, and it's you, you see it in other countries around the world. Uh, but it's um, there are other countries that um, do not have codes but who ha that have much stronger sanctioning mechanisms. Uh, take France, for example, uh, where they have the Act on Transparency in Public Life and um, activity monitored by an oversight body called the Authority of Transparency in Public Life. Um, Latvia, which has um, the enviable position of the um, best score in uh, Europe in, in the World Bank's assessments of public accountability mechanisms, uh, again, not, not from our tradition and uh, Theirs is a system with um, an act of parliament uh, with with sanctions in statute. Uh, and clearly, if, if we were to reach a situation where the advice of the Committee on Business Appointments or, or whatever it becomes uh, was was binding, we, we would we would likely need statute in order to achieve that. Absolutely. So the question that then comes to mind for me is, where, where there is legislation, what are the the kind of sanctions that fall out of that? So if, if, a, if a member of parliament or a minister is found to have, have broken a code, how what, what sanctions do they face? So uh, one one thing I am, um, uh, one thing that's come through in the discussion in this conference so far has been this tension between in a democratic system, it has to be in a, in a legislature, it has to be the elected members who, who assign a sanction. And in a ministerial system, it has to be the prime minister or the appointing minister who decides on the sanctions for his, the members of his or her ministerial team. So what are your views on that? Mario, I think you wanted to, to come in on that point. Yeah, just to, to explain uh, what the situation is in Canada, as you said, uh, we're, we're, uh, we proceed from the same tradition. Uh, therefore, uh, only the House of Commons can dispose of the uh, recommendation for a sanction. Uh, and it's interesting to note that in the code also there is a provision which says that the MP has a chance to express his point of view or her point of view uh, before the assembly, before any decision is made as to uh, an appropriate sanction. And historically in the last 17 years that the code has been in effect, this has never happened basically. Uh, no sanction has ever been imposed as a result of uh, the reports produced by the commissioner. Uh, no, and very few cases uh, did the commissioner recommend the sanction, so it's it's rare. Uh, we have not had any serious, super serious incident to deal with, if you wish. Under the Act, it's the Prime Minister. My, my job is to uh, analyze the facts, uh, conclude, come to some conclusions and to um, send a report to the Prime Minister, which is also made public at the very same moment on the web. And But Section 19 of the Act makes it clear that uh, it's a condition of employment. Respecting the provisions of the Act is a condition of employment, and it's up to the Prime Minister to decide what to do in light of the conclusions reached in my report. So we've had a few situations of resignations as a result of a report. Uh, and in fact, there is no process whereby I actually find out whether somebody has been disciplined or sanctioned for as a result of my report. There is no feedback mechanism provided for in the Act, so I don't know what happens except if it's in the public domain, of course, that uh, suddenly the CEO of a Crown Corporation has changed or something has happened. So I, I can draw an inference that it's because of the report, but there is no information mechanism, so I don't know. 
and it's up to the prime minister to make those decisions or the person he delegates, of course. Sorry, ultimately it comes back to the politics, doesn't it? It comes back to the relationship between uh, the prime minister and his or her team. What you know, what the political pressure on on the prime minister is, whatever it might be, and and that's always going to be the case in a democratic system, isn't it? I don't think there is um, there is a way around that. So, Melissa, obviously in Northern Ireland, the executive is constituted under the terms of, of the Good Friday Agreement and the, the various acts that followed on from that. You know, there is a, uh, it's an attempt to get kind of cross community representation in the executive. If if it were to come down to political discussions about uh, sanctions or, or whatever following on from your investigations, is that likely to be difficult because of the politics? I mean, it has the potential to be very difficult because of the politics. Um, we haven't seen, because this only came into force in terms of the ministerial code of conduct, it hasn't um, been tried and tested yet. In fact, my report, uh, which is investigatory and make, uh, doesn't doesn't recommend sanctions at all, that's that's the job for the committee. But my investigation and my findings go to the committee, uh, and they are now in the process of looking at what will happen to that report. What we do know is they must publish it, but whether they note it or do anything else um, is still being decided. But the fact of the matter would be that um, it would require cross-community consent, as you mentioned, 30 signatures, a special set of circumstances, and then uh, would be debated. So, I mean, there are, you're right in what you say, Tim. I think, I think the, the good thing about it um, from what I can see from the um, the Committee for uh, Standards and Public Life report um, just published is that some of the recommend, a lot of the recommendations in terms of this independent advisor, we meet those already, but where they say about publishing um, the independent advisor not being able to publish, I mean, this is a good situation that we find ourselves in Northern Ireland because the public will have access to that. Um, and mm -hmm. that is that is really an important feature of the system, I think. Yeah, Duncan, it's did you not just ultimately that the, the comes down to the prime minister, as as we saw um, last year and earlier this year. It's it's from the start as well. Um, yes, Sir Alex Allen wasn't allowed to instigate investigations. Um, Lord Guite currently is allowed to suggest to the prime minister that he instigates an investigation, but that in itself doesn't mean he's allowed to instigate an investigation. So I think there is a lot you can do, even if it is inevitable that at the very end of the day, it comes down to the Prime Minister to um, enable a good process to be followed up until that point. And uh, when Lord Evans this morning spoke of the importance of independence, I think we need to unpack what that means in, in more than one respect. Independence is not just that um, this regulator or, or watchdog is is not a close friend, is is not a former political uh, colleague. Independence is, is not just by design, but it is is in practice. And, and the way we, we put it in our submission to the committee was about autonomy, uh, that um, if, if this actor has some autonomy, that is a manifestation of their independence. And what we have seen with the Prime Minister's advisor on ministerial interests is uh, that the way that role has operated, they, they have lacked autonomy. And 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 that is one measure of uh, how we could improve the independence of this. Yeah, and perhaps the the role of the parliamentary commissioner here in the UK is is that she is more independent. And the fact that you know, we effectively we had a member of the cabinet calling for her resignation on the morning news today, and she is still in post. So there is you know it's it's easy to complain about the UK system, but there are some aspects of it that where, where the independence is working. Mario, did you want to come back on, on that point? Yes, just to emphasize that uh, I am fortunate. Uh, I was appointed. I'm, I'm appointed by the government, but uh, after a resolution is adopted by the House of Commons and it's a fixed term of seven years, uh, it's renewable. Uh, and then uh, it's very, very clear in the statute that it takes a resolution of the House of Commons in order to remove me from the position. And I can initiate both under the code and the act an investigation whenever I have grounds to believe that the contravention may have occurred. Completely independent, 
the best manifestation of that, that in Canada is that we've had three investigations uh, involving the conduct of a prime minister initiated by the commissioner following or not following a complaint made by an MP. So it's the uh, I'm very, very pleased to work in a jurisdiction where I do enjoy independence and it comes with a, a degree of, of course, accountability and a sense of responsibility. Uh, but that's that's what the I guess they weigh when they appoint the person in the first place. They should appoint somebody who has some judgment, otherwise it could become quite messy. Um, the decisions has to be made, you know, in a reasoned fashion, in a non-partisan fashion. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be able to work within such a regime. Absolutely. So on that last point about, you know, it, it can get messy. Um, it's very easy to talk about standards as if it's about punishment and enforcement and all of these very negative words. But actually, I think an argument that we at the IFG would make, I think you would agree, uh, Duncan and Transparency International, I'm sure the Committee on Standards would agree, is that this, if these are upheld properly, these are in the interests of the people who they are, who they apply to. It's in MPs' interests, it's in ministers' interests, it's in MLAs' interests to uphold standards, to show that they are behaving in a way that the public expects them to do so. Is, do you agree with that? I mean, anyone on the panel, you know, what, what, what do you think is in it for MPs, ministers, MLAs? Uh, to, to show that they're upholding these standards? Well, um, I, could I just say, I think that um, Lord Evans made a great point today about um, education. I'll come back to that. But I do think that it's extremely important um, when you think about ethics and standards and, and how important they are. People need to remember that holding, holding them to account makes society much better. Um, and, you know, it, it helps everybody in a society. So I was really... Um, you know, I felt that the voices to, that I, in the past 24 hours, screaming out made, you know, warm my heart because I thought, you know, sometimes you do begin to think um, from the rhetoric you hear that maybe people don't really value standards. But, you know, today I feel like that is, yeah, I feel much better about the job I do today because we care about ethics and we care about standards because they really matter. And sometimes that gets lost. And I never want, I always get a fear that we're going to get to the point where the unacceptable becomes acceptable for some, you know, a slippery slope. And Duncan, you mentioned that earlier about the culture. And I think standards are so inextricably linked to culture and can change culture in such a positive way. And once we put our minds to it, and that's where the education comes in. Um, so in ethics education, you know, I always believe in the, the uh, reflective bit and thinking about, you know, how things went and talking them through and trying to understand you know, how we can all do better at certain things when, when we can. And I think that's what we're trying. I'm trying to come up with something in, within the assembly that would uh, allow and engage people in that. And that, that can be difficult because engaging people even in the induction can be difficult, I know. But I think there's so, a work to be done in education because I think that can enthuse people a bit more about standards. I was saying to you earlier, I, you know, the past 24 hours, that's the most, you know, most, most I've heard about standards and ethics in a while, and it was quite exciting to me. So, so um, I would look forward to that happening to impact culture in a positive way. Definitely. Politicians want to be able to do things. They, they want to be able to make a difference. And in order to do that, they need to be trusted. That's First right. to get the opportunity to do it, but, but then to actually be able to get people to go along with these things. And you know, we've just been through this dreadful pandemic, the things that government has been able to get society to do and to conform with have been beyond anything that people would have imagined before. And fundamentally, your ability to do that rests on trust. Yeah. You know, if, if you want to respond to uh, the threat of climate change and the things that governments will want to be doing about that, they will need to be able to take people with them through that journey. And that requires trust. And trust is not just about being trusted to do what you said you would do. And, and I'll put my hand up as the, you know, first of all, there's someone who's failed to, to do that consistently. But but trust is also about being trusted to do things for the right reasons and such that the things you want to do are trusted to be something that people should go along with. So, yes, this absolutely matters to the ability of politicians to to to, to achieve what they want to achieve in the in the course of their work. Yeah, and can I just add, sorry, can I just add to that? It matters for the future of the people who are coming in who want to maybe have a career in politics. You know, you want people to want to come into politics. That, that's what we want, right? So mm -hmm. I think it matters in so many ways. 
And what you what you've just said is uh, reflected if the committee has an interest in looking at it in the preambles of the both the code and the act. The notions that you've been discussing are reflected right there as being the raison d'être, if you wish, of uh, of the, uh, the the two instruments. The uh, the, fi the finality is in there to to keep increase trust by the public in those uh, elected to the House of Commons or the people who are appointed by government. Brilliant. Well, a good plug there. We will definitely all be checking out the preambles to, to those pieces of, of legislation and, and the code. So I'm going to move us on now to a, a related topic. One of the points that you made, Duncan, at the beginning about the idea of the revolving door. So um, the, the this is this is the question of do we trust ministers and senior civil servants to act in the public interest when they're in office if they've got an eye on a cushy corporate job afterwards or if once they're out of office they are using their contacts and their know-how to benefit a new employer slash themselves ultimately. Um, there's a question, an anonymous question, which is about are there any realistic solutions to the problem of delayed gratification and revolving doors? This person is not sure that cooling off periods are enough. So Mario, if I could start with you, perhaps I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the, the scope of your role on post-employment conditions and how that works in Canada. So what do we do when some someone's uh, appointment has come to an end? We basically notify, first of all, the person has an obligation in the statute to inform us of any firm offer of employment that they receive within seven days of having received it. And they also have a statutory obligation to inform me of the, of the fact that they have accepted an offer of employment again within seven days so that the commissioner's office has a chance to review the situation against provisions in the act that uh, clearly prohibit uh, former public officials to accept uh, employment, a contract with or a seat on the board of any entity with which they had official, significant and direct contacts during the last year of their tenure. Okay, so and it's up to and that's a, it's a prohibition in the statute. And therefore, if I have reason to believe that someone has done that, I can launch an investigation, come to the conclusion, and I can, it's public shaming as well. Public shaming is part of the scheme. The report gets published the minute it's finalized. It, uh, it's in, it comes to the public domain. So we've had a few situations of that happening, of a uh, former uh, public uh, office holder doing what is prohibited under section 35. 35 also prohibits clearly what you've just described, the use of information. Uh, that that you add in your former position in order to benefit your new employer. Subsection 35.2 prohibits that. And it's for, in the case of ministers, it's for a period of two years. In the case of other public office holders, it's one year after you have left your position that these prohibitions exist. Um, so the, the sanction is, um, is an, a possible investigation, a possible public shaming. And also I have the power under the act to order those who are still public office holders, I can order them to not to meet, not to have any dealings with the person who has just been found to contravene the statute, Section 41 of the Act, uh, which is a somewhat extraordinary power, which I've used last year against, uh, uh, I've ordered 10 or 11 individuals, including the Deputy Prime Minister, from uh, having any, uh, any meeting, any discussions, any uh, conversations or text messaging or any form of communication with Canada's former ambassador in Washington who was found to have contravened Section 35 of the Act. Wow, so that, that is quite a, a broad ranging set of powers there and I presume part of that is it would tackle some of the issues that we've seen in the UK where former Prime Minister David Cameron was found to have been lobbying on behalf of a finance company. Now that was a long time after he was Prime Minister, so perhaps the, again yours is time limited like the arrangement is here. But the idea that you could ban individuals in government from meeting former ministers or officials, that, that is not something that we have here, is it Duncan? Do you think that Canadian system would work in the UK? Would you like to see more? Um, well, I, I think it's fascinating to, to hear an example of uh, a regulator with quite a sophisticated range of interventions at their disposal. And um, I, I, I expect uh, Lord Pickles, my, my eyes might have turned a little green as, as, as he was listening, if he was listening to that just now. Um, I, I think there are some other 
perhaps creative responses we could go for. So, um, uh, you know, perhaps we need to make better use of our former prime ministers now that they are younger. Um, perhaps the idea that your public life ends when you cease to hold the top job um, is not necessary. Maybe there is some, you know, some relationship with, um, you know, if not pensions, then then other um, support for a public role of you know, active contributing senior former politicians. Uh, if you like, maybe that is the, the carrot to um, uh, Lord Evans's uh, suggestion that it might be necessary to raid pensions of those that fall foul of um, standards codes. Uh, it comes back to this point about culture. If, if the culture is you do a stint in politics and you feel underremunerated while you were doing it, and then after you're out, you, you you cash in as quickly as you can, and you know you've said goodbye to your your contribution to public life. Then that's that's a pretty sad state of affairs, isn't it? So I I think we probably could um, be more creative as a you know indeed our, our politicians could could be more um, committed to uh, finding good uses in public life for for their for their senior colleagues who may may have either you know abruptly um left office or may simply have, have tired of what is a pretty exhausting you know 24 7 um um mill for, for those for those at the top of politics yeah. absolutely and just just a quick follow-up so uh, another anonymous question is about does akaba the advisory committee on business appointments have enough uh, resources to investigate breaches or impose sanctions. So we had Lord Pickles, who was the chair of ACABA earlier on today, and he he was definitely making a spending review bid. He was uh, you know a bit late perhaps, but he was he made a pitch for some some more money for some more resources to better enforce those the the business appointment rules. What's your view, Duncan? Do, do they need more resources to do that properly? Uh, yes, uh, it, it is. Um, it, it it is a paper tiger. Uh, if they can simply say, you know, you know, we will be very angry with you if uh, if you don't follow what we've said. But by the way, you know, there's no way we'll know. Uh, this comes back to the issue of lobbying transparency, however, because the, the main focus of those recommendations, that advice um, uh, is around, you know, not not lobbying your friends in government and getting paid for your access to them. And if we had a more comprehensive uh, register of lobbying, if more of that was brought out of the shadows, uh, then you, you wouldn't need a um, investigatory unit in the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments because it would more, much more of it would be out in the public domain. Um, Mario. I forgot to mention a few minutes ago that uh, I have the power to grant a waiver, a reduction, total or partial of the period. If uh, the statute sets out six criteria that the commissioner has to go through, and uh, if the public interest in seeing what is being proposed happen is greater than the public interest in maintaining the confidence uh, of uh, the work of the public official when he was in uh, in his public duties, uh, so it's a it's a it's a balancing test. The power given to the commissioner not reviewable to grant or to refuse to grant a waiver. Uh, to allow the uh, public office holder to proceed in spite of the period. So it's not inflexible. And uh, we have considered several such requests. We've granted many. And when such a request is granted, it's published. It's in the public registry. So it's not done uh, in a clandestine way. Uh, if a former prime minister wishes to do something and if uh, he wants a waiver and if he uh, he goes through the sixth test, and if I conclude that it's permissible, then it will be allowed and it will be published uh, in the registry the morning after it's granted. Basically, uh, everybody will know, and I'm the only one who's accountable for having made the decision to allow uh, somebody in, in that fashion. So, um, and it's another important responsibility. In other words, and it, it ensures that no absurd result will uh, it, there's it, there's a window to avoid any absurd result from ensuing from this period of two years that uh, you shall not do anything during uh, during that period so uh, <clears throat> i uh, it weighs heavily on my shoulders what i decide to grant it but i i have granted it on on several occasions that makes sense thank you um 
one more question from from the audience on this stuff and then let's move on to lobbying because it's come up a couple of times and I want to get into it properly. But there is another uh, anonymous question. Um, how is the propriety of business appointments slash lobbying judged after the two year limit on both? So, for example, David Cameron's appointment happened after two years. Duncan, do you what, what's Transparency International view? Should should two year limit be extended or is, is, is there some other kind of arrangement rather than a time limit that's needed? So the answer to the question is it isn't judged after two years. It, it, not 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 within the system of regulation. You know, it, I guess ultimately it's judged in in public opinion, uh, but um, but there is no there is no mechanism. Uh, there's no requirement to to seek advice after two years. Uh, I think in some cases uh, there is merit in that being longer. Uh, I can also recognise that the, I'm not sure you need to make it shorter, but but you know the reality of the situation is is when you have wholesale changes of government, then you know the, the risk is much reduced, and I, I can envisage a situation where um, uh, where where you know, you might conclude that two years wasn't necessary, or even if they're seeking advice within a two year period, um, there are fewer conditions imposed towards the end of that period, especially if their own colleagues are no longer in government. Uh, we, um, I, I think we need to think about this, not just in terms of controls, but also in terms of uh, the culture of our politics and our politicians and what they aspire to do and that's not to say that working in the private sector is somehow uh, an unacceptable choice uh, but you know that there, there are there are different ways in which we can all make contributions during our working careers and um and it, it is sad to me quite how often uh former politicians are pulled into uh, lobbying practice, not necessarily with consultant lobbyists, I might add, often in in much cosier, more in-house uh, setups. And um, and ultimately, it will be the example of the politicians give each other that will start to change that culture. And, and that's partly how we've got into it, isn't it? That they've seen they've seen their colleagues, their predecessors, and they've seen a, a path well trodden uh, and all of this is incumbent on all of us to bring about change, not just those who write rules. Melissa, do you want to come in on that point? Well, I was just considering the fact that we all have these codes that we're working to. I mean, we haven't really mentioned, um, you know, the code itself and the updating of the code and the updating of the processes, which seems to be what the last 24 hours has focused somewhat on. And to me, that is crucial. Uh, and of course, Chris Bryan, who I thought, you know, really, you know, was excellent yesterday evening uh, when he gave his speech. I believe that, you know, what he was trying to say is that this is normal practice. We look at the code and then we look at the, the procedures and everything once a mandate and, and we must. And that is to reflect societal norms and changes in procedures and where the commissioner, the commissioner for standards should feed into all of that um, and others, but should feed into that because they are working with the code all the time and they can see. And I was quite um, happy to see um, Lord Evans discuss the fact that they've put the respect, explicitly put respect into the leadership principle, which to me is where I'm seeing a lot of change in terms of behaviors, you know, a lack of decency and respect uh, for each other, you know, you do get complaints outside of that too, but it, it's simply something that I think we we forget that um, isn't necessarily codified in the codes. And I really feel that we need to we definitely need to reflect respect in a rule somehow. Although it's in the leadership principle, not all principles are within the rules of a code that can be enforceable. And so once we can actually try to find a way to put that into a code of conduct where it means it's meaningful. Um, we might also see a change in behavior because I think behavior is really a lot of what we're talking about, um, you know, outside of lobbying and things that we're talking about the past 24 hours. But the code itself needs to be meaningful to make culture change. And I think that's where I feel a real uh, change could occur. Absolutely. So this this idea of culture, I mean, it, it comes back to this point that we talked about earlier, right? That. Uh, in, in any democratic system, but in any organisation, a culture is set from the top. There needs to be leadership, there needs to be kind of role models, people 
demonstrating and living by the principles that they want everyone else to, to, to live by. Someone's posed an interesting question, which is, could having too many rules or rules that are too strict discourage qualified and connected people to join the ranks of, of public officials? Because, you know, if, if we try and use rules to impose that culture, do we make public life less attractive? Does anyone have any, any views on that? Well, <laughs> I've, I've volunteered for that. Okay, um, uh, unattractive to me um, and and I would say when I look back on it and I and I think about um, you know, what was the cost of you know going into you know becoming a member of parliament to me um, while I was doing it, it it was it was certainly not um, the rules I was having to follow it was the at times quite brutal uh, environment in which um, the contest took place that um, that there you know there was often a lack of mutual respect uh, a lack of um, open-mindedness about the the difficult choices that people were making uh, of an incre I mean it's far far more difficult now than when than I, when I was in Parliament but a, a really angry and antagonistic um, uh, environment in, in, in which you are held accountable uh, and so I, I don't think it's the rules that will put many people going off of politics it will be the way that they see different politicians treat each other and maybe maybe better rules could help with that treatment so yeah, yeah. fine okay right I want to talk about lobbying because we've sort of danced around it a little bit but um, it's time so Melissa, you mentioned earlier how under the Functioning of Government Act in Northern Ireland, ministers are required to declare uh, any kind of any time they're lobbying. They are lobbied, sorry. Um, is that system bedding in? That's that's quite new for the for the the Northern Ireland executive. Is is that working from your? Well, point it was of a view? should. It was a should do. It was always in the code and the guide. It was a should do, um, and now you know it's a must, um, and and it's codified now. Um, and I assume it is bedding in. I mean, the register of interest. Um, in fact, I just had to. Uh, access the other day, uh, it seems to have been because that was also included in um, the function of Government Act. So, yes, I think things are betting in, um, you know, there's lots going on, as you know, in the world of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. But I do, I was heartened to see it seems to have some things are you know, happening, definitely. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, I, I have to say, um, you know, they go to lengths um, for guidance on members of dealing with lobbyists and, and really detailed. I'm sure they, they must have the same similar guidance in in Westminster, but the the and it's very clear you're not allowed paid advocacy, you know, very, very clear. And in this new codified um, act, it shows exactly it says exactly uh, what it is. It defines it. You know, there's less room to misunderstand. And I think that is very that is one of the key elements here. We need to be very clear. You know, the fact that um, you had a situation of the past 24 hours where where it was suggested that someone didn't know that this was wrong seems to me to stand a reason that perhaps those things need to be spelled out extremely clearly um but but that that i'm just taking on face value that perhaps it is somewhere um but the fact that it was able to be suggested that he didn't see a conflict was very odd to me in that respect yeah. so part Duncan. of the uh, cfib uh, <coughs> Since 2006, there is a companion piece called the Lobbying Act in Canada, and the lobbying has its own commissioner, basically. And there is a uh, prohibition for five years. Anybody who is a reporting public office holder is prohibited for a period of five years from being a lobbyist as defined in the Lobbying Act, basically. And uh, there's a very solid registry of uh, not only lobbyists, but of uh, meetings that have taken place between lobbyists and uh, people who are subjected to the lobbying act. So uh, <clears throat> I have a counterpart. I do not deal in lobbying matters. She does. Nancy Belanger is her name. Well, lots to learn from Canada, I think. So, so Duncan, so that's that's talking about Mario and, and Melissa talking about kind of those who lobby, whether you know from ex-parliamentarians, ex-ministers, ex-officials. What about those in government who are lobbied? What would we mentioned earlier you'd like to see more transparency what 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 form would that take what would you like to see well 
we don't have a lobbying register in the UK. We have a register of consultant lobbyists. And it's a list of consultants that have registered. It doesn't tell us about the lobbying that's happening. So um, it, it doesn't even tell us about the you know, 90 odd percent of lobbyists that aren't consultants, but who you know work for the organization and are on the payroll of the organization that they lobby for. Um, in Canada, Ireland, Scotland, they in all of those jurisdictions, it's it's necessary to register lobbying activity. Public can find out the purpose of the meetings. They can see who's lobbying, who they're lobbying, what they're lobbying about, when it's happening. The information is timely. In the US, the, the register um, records spending. So there is a sense of how much is being spent on this lobbying activity, which is relevant to try and understand whether something is, is material in an effort to, to change public opinion, uh, to change public policy. So um, uh, we, we would understand a lot more about the lobbied if we had a lobbying, if we had a register of the lobbying they receive. Lord Evans and um, uh, Boardman in his uh, review, uh, uh, Cabinet Office non-exec director in his review for the government, both recognise that we need more transparency from government about the meetings that ministers have, how they are lobbied. Um, I would say it's not just ministers that that matter. In in other jurisdictions, if you, if you meet with special advisers and that 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 counts as uh, lobbying that is of interest, it would only take a statutory instrument, you know, a simple vote by a committee of MPs to extend our, our current requirements such that consultant lobbyists would have to register if they met special advisers. Um, and that would even require primary legislation. Uh, I think you do need primary legislation for putting a lot of this right. Uh, but that's not to say that we couldn't make some quick improvements of the sort that Boardman has already mentioned, uh, but before you know, waiting for a time to be made available in the legislative programme. Great. Well, that gives me a, an opportunity to plug some of our own IFG work, which was a paper we did a month or so ago looking at declarations by government departments at UK level, uh, how, how frequently they publish the information about who their ministers are meeting, the quality of that information. Some of the our main message was it's just incredibly mixed. You know, departments are supposed to publish this information on a quarterly basis. Some of them hit the deadline, some of them don't. Some of it gets caught up in the kind of number 10 grid planning process, so it never gets published. Um, and then when they actually do publish it, the information itself is of hugely varied quality. Sometimes you get reams of information about who a minister is meeting and what they're discussing. Sometimes my favourite one was one recently was that the business secretary met various different people to discuss business. Which I just think, you know, is that that's not transparency. It doesn't it, it doesn't tell the interested citizen anything. So it's um, the, the, even even the kind of the, the sort of low level of expected transparency that we have in the UK, the government isn't always hitting it. So I think, you know, yes, we agree. Probably would like to see more, but they've got a long way to go to get to where they're supposed to be already. We have a website um, that makes this data as easily uh, digestible as possible. It's uh, our open access platform, transparency.org.uk slash open access. Um, uh, we would like to be put out of business. We would like uh, not to be doing that. We would like actually government with all of its resources to uh, do a better job than us of making this information uh, not just readily available, but readily analysable by people who are trying to understand what's happening in, in lobbying of government. Great. Uh, and yeah, I second that is a really useful resource and I found it very interesting. Um, to turn to a question from the audience, um, just because special advisors came up in that discussion then, someone has asked, does the role of special advisors and consultants need to be reined in? Uh, regarding the conflict of interest therein. I, I think presumably that's thinking about the relationship between special advisors and those outside government. Um, Duncan, if I could pass that to you perhaps, what, what's your view on the role of special advisors? So in, in relation to this question of lobbying, uh, meetings with special advisors appear in lobbying registers in uh, the US, Canada, Ireland, uh, even in Scotland, uh, but not for Westminster, uh, for the UK. Uh, and uh, so, you know, if, if I was, I would not expect to be getting a meeting with a minister as readily as one of their aides if I was seeking to influence policy. Um, also, I would consider that their advisor could be incredibly influential on the outcome. And yet, um, 
there is no recognition of this in in our current transparency arrangements. Uh, so um, when we say we want a comprehensive register, you know, civil servants of a certain level of seniority, special advisors who you know do the bidding of their ministers uh, ought to be included within scope. Yeah, absolutely. Melissa, how, how does it work in Northern Ireland with regard to special advisors? Are they in, in Again, scope of the functioning of the Act? Uh, yes, they are. They are. And that was a big issue um, in, in the New Decade, New Approach. Um, that was a, a very big part of, of the Function of Government Act. Um, and it actually came after there was a lot of criticism over the RHI scandal and SPADs doing their uh, special advisors, you know, maybe not documenting things or again, meetings not documented and things. So now again, it is heavily, it actually covers it quite a lot in the Functioning of Government Act. So I, I think that was a, a, big, a big part of, 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 of the act in that respect. And it, it stands to what um, Duncan is saying is needed within the UK as well. Yeah, because the role of special advisors in the collapse of the executive and the assembly That's right. with RHI was very That's important, right. wasn't it? Yeah. That's it correct, and it was a big controversy over that. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 uh, in Canada, ministerial advisors, there is a definition in the Act and they are all uh, public office holders regulated by the Conflict yeah. of Interest Act. Anybody, yeah. and I'm asked, you know, what is a ministerial advisor? It's very simple. It's somebody who provides direct advice to a minister, period. Uh, irrespective of tenure, irrespective, uh, you know, if it's two hours a week or it's 200 hours a week, it doesn't matter uh, because it's access that matters, it's influence, uh, as was mentioned by uh, Duncan. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, oh, please. Go uh, sorry, on. in terms of lobbying, same applies. I mean, if you, it, it's either a minister or a special advisor, so it's both. I have to write down and, and record that and register it with their department. So there is a, a, a tightening of that, definitely. Right. No, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, from the point of view of the Institute for Government, our, our general view on special advisors is that they provide a really useful service to ministers. Ministers are incredibly busy people. They need support. They need political advice. Uh, and they also are really important to the impartial civil service that then there's no expectation that the civil service is providing political advice. So SPADs play a hugely important role. We think they're a good thing in government. We think they should have more support. and. We think, as, as Duncan said, they are incredibly influential on their ministers' thinking and therefore they should be subject to many of the same kind of requirements around transparency as ministers. Um, right, we are nearly at the end of our hour, so I want to end with a, a final question that I will ask for all of the panellists, which I have not warned you about, so apologies for springing this on you, but what one piece of advice would you give to the UK government about how it could improve its standards regime? If there was just one thing that you thought, OK, this is what they will do, uh, from from your own uh, jurisdiction or from just your own kind of personal experience, what 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 would be the one thing? Um, who would like to go first? Uh, clarity comes to mind. Clarity uh, to have rules that are as clear as possible, yet avoiding inflexible rules. That I think that's key. Okay. Nice and very succinct. Thank you very much. Um, I think for me, I would say. Uh, making sure that the ministerial code of conduct is very clear where you know once once we you know I, I agree with lord evans it says you do take away the ministerial code that deals with procedures of the executive and make a code of conduct very clear and if possible i would i, I would legislate for it um in terms of who deals with that uh, if it's if it's an independent advisor and ensure that they have the right uh, that they at least have the right to publish i think that is extremely important for public confidence Brilliant, thank you. And Duncan, last word. I would say respect the independence of your standards arrangements. And I think that was the thing that most angered the public about what they saw this week, much more than the underlying uh, issues. Uh, and if I might just cheat and squeeze one more in, I, I, would, I would urge all of our politicians to take some responsibility as peers and friends of their colleagues to try and uphold standards informally amongst themselves. I, I, I can imagine that when he reflects on this week, Owen Patterson might ask himself why none of his friends who would have seen from the various transparency disclosures, some of his uh, arrangements, certainly his, his outside employment, why none of his friends counseled him that perhaps this wasn't such a good idea. I think I think that's incredibly important and, and, and touches on 
many of the points that we talked throughout in terms of the culture and the expectations and what what people go into public life for and what what we expect from them um three very very useful answers thank you very much i'm going to be writing something about our conference so i will be stealing all of your ideas appreciate them um that is all we have time for i'm afraid so thank you to my panel fantastic fantastic discussion uh, thank you to everyone who has watched online and who has um, asked questions. Uh, the final event in our conference starts in half an hour, and that is Peter Riddle, who until recently was Public Appointments Commissioner, talking about how the public appointments process can be improved. Join if you can, all the details on our website. And as I said, if you'd like to listen back to any of today's discussions, they're available on our website too. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks.